Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, what may be called the private morality of climate change, what we as individuals should do about uh, climate change. And I decided to approach the subject in uh, an autobiographical way. Um, I hope you don't find this too self-indulgent, but I wanted to uh, explain to you something about how my thinking has gone, how I came to be interested uh, in the subject, and how I came to be rather surprised by some of the conclusions uh, I came to. Um, I am, to introduce myself, my name is John Broom. I'm um, the professor of moral philosophy here. I'm a philosopher. Uh, however, there is a slightly unusual thing about me in that being a philosopher is a comparatively recent phase in my life. For 30 years, I was actually employed as a, uh, an economist. Um, that was a subject I fell into pretty much by accident um, when I was an undergraduate. I went to Cambridge to uh, study uh, mathematics. Um, but I'm sorry to say, by the end of the first year, I was bored to tears uh, by mathematics. Um, I was tempted to put in a remark blaming the Cambridge mathematics course for that, but perhaps I shouldn't do that. Um, so I thought I would do something else, anything else, really, instead. So I went to a number of um, people who taught a number of subjects. I went to a philosopher, um, said, I think you're doing philosophy. And he said, uh, he said, oh, uh, if you're thinking of doing that, what I recommend is that you leave the university and go and get a job building roads for three or four years, and that'll put that idea out of your head. <laughs> I learned afterwards he was just copying Wittgenstein. He used to say that to potential students. Um, uh, anyhow, I decided not to do philosophy. Um, and instead, uh, I took up economics, the economists were very welcoming. And there I was, trapped in that subject for 30 years. Now, I say trapped um, because it wasn't long before I felt I would prefer to be a philosopher. But I couldn't get a job in philosophy because I didn't have good enough uh, qualifications. You may be relieved to hear that I do have some qualifications. <laughs> Oxford's professor of philosophy Moral philosophy does actually have a degree in philosophy, but it was only a master's degree that I took after I'd done a PhD in economics, and that was not good enough for me to get a lectureship uh, in uh, philosophy. So I remained a, an economist, um, and in the end became a professor of economics. That was at Bristol University. Um, but my writing did have some philosophical content, and eventually, St. Andrew's University... Um, was generous enough to offer me a professorship of philosophy. I'm eternally grateful to them for that, and particularly to their evidently very liberal-minded professor of moral philosophy there, uh, John Skorupski. So I took the job, and I breathed a sigh of relief at the thought that I would never have to do economics uh, again. But I didn't realize then that I actually was still trapped uh, by economics without uh, knowing it. And that's because I'd accidentally, again by accident, stepped into another snare, and that was uh, climate change. The methods of economics are essential um, for thinking about climate change, 
And since I am involved in climate change, that keeps bringing me back to uh, economics. So I'm particularly telling you these things because I want to explain that there is a, a real substantive connection between economics, economic theory, and moral philosophy. These two disciplines do make, have significant connections uh, with each other. They have connections actually in both directions. Um, for one thing, I think a knowledge of the methods of economics, which tend to be for rather formal mathematical methods, um, are very useful for work in moral philosophy. I think moral philosophy would benefit from having more of that. But the connection in the other direction is one that will concern us um, this morning. Um, and that connection is that moral philosophy is truly, ultimately, the foundation of a lot of economics. As I like to put it, uh, economics, or at any rate a large part of economics, is just a branch of ethics, a branch of uh, moral philosophy, if you like. It's, it's applied ethics. Why do I say that? Well, it's because most of economics is about how things ought to be done in the economic domain. There's a scientific branch as well, which figures out how things happen, but a great deal of it is uh, about how things ought to happen. It's about such things as whether the top rate of income tax ought to be 50%, um, about what regulations ought the banks to uh, operate uh, under. Those are ought questions, how ought things to be. And not only that, but they concern the interests of people. Indeed, they nearly always are a matter of conflicting interests of different people. Changing the top rate of income tax is good for some people and bad for other people. So economics is about conflicts of interest, and all questions that involve conflicts of interest are uh, inevitably questions within morality. Correct answers to those questions are going to have to rest on morality, and that means they're the business of uh, moral philosophy. To be sure, working out the correct answers for these economic questions is going to be very complicated, largely because they concern so many different people. Economists deal with lots and lots of people all at the same time. So it inevitably involves complex methods, complex technical methods, such as cost-benefit analysis. And those are the methods of economics. But underlying those methods is always going to be principles of uh, morality. Economics is really the complicated working out of the consequences of ethical principles. So it is indeed a branch of applied ethics. Now, you'll see why I'm telling you this um, as I continue with uh, my autobiography. Um, before I became a philosopher, actually, when I was still at Bristol as an economist, I had written a book about climate change entitled uh, Counting the Cost of Global Warming. That, again, was largely an accident. I happened to hear um, that the Economic and Social Research Council was offering a grant for somebody to work on a particular question to do with global warming, and it looked like quite a good way of getting out of teaching economics for a term, so I took the opportunity. And so I wrote the book, and um, then I thought, well, I've, that's it. Uh, I've done my bit for global warming, um, and I did uh, other things. 
But then it happened that 15 years later, after I had become a philosopher, and by the time I was working in Oxford, uh, Nicholas Stern came to Oxford um, just as he was starting work on his great work, uh, the Stern Review of the Economics of Climate Change. And he persuaded me to write a little bit about the ethics of climate change for that review, which I did. Uh, didn't take very long. I don't think, honestly, it had much of an effect on the content of the Stern Review. Um, but again, uh, I thought, well, I've done it. I've done, uh, I've done my bit. Um, uh, and uh, I didn't have to do more on climate change. I was, again, getting away from uh, economics. I really didn't want to do economics again, as this, this may be coming across. And if you do climate change, you have to do economics. Well, the next thing that happened was that after the Stern Review was published, an Oxford uh, e economist who worked on the Stern Review, much more than I did, Cameron Hepburn, uh, showed me a couple of reviews of the Stern Review, which had been written by um, some American uh, economists, um, William Nordhaus and Martin Weizmann. Both of those reviews objected to one feature of the Stern Review, um, which is that it's explicitly founded on ethics. Stern says that right at the beginning of the Stern Review. And in fact, the ethical premises he assumed went a long way to explaining his views uh, about climate change, the conclusions he came to about climate change. In particular, his view that we really need to do something urgent and forceful to, uh, to control it. But both Nordhaus and Weizmann asserted that ethics has nothing at all to do with economics. Ethics should be, economics should be an ethics-free uh, zone, they said. And they said that rather stridently. So I've got a quote here from Nordhaus. He said, the Stern Review takes the lofty vantage point of the world social planner. This is, next is a phrase I like. Perhaps stoking the dying embers of the British Empire in determining the way the world should combat the dangers of global warming. So this actually turned out to be a nationalistic uh, issue. And I think it is fair to say that Nordhaus and Weizmann were representing the typical views of uh, American economists who on the whole, do believe that ethics has no place in economics, whereas um, British economists are much more inclined to recognize that their subject has uh, ethical foundations. You might wonder how the American economists could possibly think that. Um, how could they think that climate change in particular is not a matter for uh, ethics? Um, the question posed by climate change, as Stern saw it, and as a lot of people see it, um, is, is about how much the present generation should sacrifice in the way of its own consumption for the sake of uh, future generations. By making sacrifices, Stern pointed out, uh, that's, for example, by traveling less, turning our thermostats down, and so on, by making those sacrifices, we are able to make life better for future people, people who will live in 100, 200 years. And the question is, how far should we go in making those sacrifices? 
that's a matter of the conflicting interests of different generations. So how could that possibly not be a matter of ethics? Well, the answer of, the, of those American economists is not actually particularly uh, disreputable or anything. The answer is that they are Democrats. They think a choice like that ought to be left to the preferences of individuals, of, of the people. The decision about how much we should sacrifice for future generations, they think, should be determined by how much people as individuals are willing to sacrifice, rather than by what some ethical theory says people should uh, sacrifice. And we can tell what they're willing to sacrifice from their behavior. As they put it, their behavior on the market reveals their willingness to make sacrifice. In particular, their willingness, their behavior in saving for the future. Some of their saving will go to, to um, improve the lives of future people. How much they're willing to do that should reflect, tells us what we, the social planners, the governments, should be doing on their behalf to promote the interests of uh, future generations. That's the basis, they think, on which decisions about uh, climate change should be made, rather than on some uh, ethical theory. It's a perfectly defensible view. However, it is an ethical view. It's their own particular ethical view that decisions of this sort should be founded on the behavior of individuals uh, work operating in the market. So it's not that they have an ethics-free economics. What they have is an economics that's committed to a particular ethical view. And is to be, and that means is to be subject to examination by the methods of moral philosophy, like uh, any other. So they do not successfully free economics from ethics, as they think. Anyhow, I was certainly very strongly on Stern's side in this particular debate, since I think uh, economics is a branch of uh, ethics. The idea that economics is free of ethics seems to me absolutely. Uh, mistaken, and in fact I got angry about it. I don't know exactly how much of academic life is driven by anger, but I do find that quite often the things that I write, I'm forced to write by being rather angry about what somebody else has done. Um, uh, I decided I'd better defend the role of ethics in uh, economics. I wrote an article opposing Weizmann and Nordhaus. I published it in the, in the popular magazine Scientific American because I wanted to reach uh, a large audience with it. And as a result, or partly as a result of that uh, article, I found myself completely trapped in the climate change business. Uh, I was asked to be an author on the next um, report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a massive uh, three-volume work that's coming out in, in two or three years' time. I was asked to write another book uh, on the subject of climate change, this time on the ethics of climate change. So there was nothing I could do about it, really. I couldn't, couldn't stop doing the climate change stuff. And, and I also thought, in fact, I realized that I'm getting old. Um, and it seems to me that a moral philosopher sometime in his life ought actually to do something that might have do a little bit of good. Um, you know, I spend my time thinking about abstruse questions about rationality and reasoning and stuff. That's what I really like to do. But this is actually a practically important question, and surely I should be willing to do something about, about it. So I succumbed to climate change for a bit. So 
continue with the story, the story of my life. Um, I started writing the book that I mentioned. This is meant to be a popular book about the ethics of climate change. I'm sorry to say it's not out yet. Um, it's not coming out till March. So perhaps you can remember to buy it in March. It's called uh, Climate Matters. Um, a good part of that book continues on the track that I was set up to follow by my history as uh, an economist. Economists look at things on a large scale. They think about how the society ought to be or what the government ought to be doing or perhaps what the international community uh, ought to be doing. They're not interested in what individuals ought to do. That's not economist business at all. And the problems that they deal with on these large scale re require their complicated methods just because they are such large scale problems. Um, in fact, they inevitably require what could be called cost-benefit analysis on the very, in the very broadest uh, sense. If you're thinking about climate change, you can recognize that there's a cost to doing something about climate change, to slowing climate change down. It's a cost in the form of present sacrifices, like we should travel less, uh, for example. So there's a cost, and on the other hand, there's a benefit in the form of um, increased quality of life to people, most of them who are not yet born, but some of them who are already born, um, many of them living in very distant parts of the world. So we have a cost and we have a benefit. And the problem of climate change is to balance the cost against the benefit in order to determine what we should be doing about it. So it is cost-benefit analysis. That's the way that economists are inevitably going to look at uh, climate change. And looking at it that way raises a number of issues that um, are now really rather well-trodden ground in the uh, arguments. Um, for instance, there's the question of how, in that work, to take on board the very great uncertainty that there still is in our understanding of the mechanism of climate change. This is the scientific uncertainty. Scientists are not yet in a position to predict how much global warming there will be as a result of any particular quantity of uh, greenhouse gas that we dump into the atmosphere. Um, the latest report of the IPCC, that's to say the one before the one that I'm, I'm working on, um, says that if we double the concentration of, of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, then in the long run we can expect somewhere in the region of two or three degrees of global warming. It, but it says it may be less than that, and it also says that the science cannot rule out a great deal more warming than that. It says explicitly the science cannot rule out warming a great deal more than four and a half uh, degrees. So there is um, a, a big uh, uncertainty, and we have a question, how should we take that on board in our cost-benefit uh, uh, analysis? Another issue one of the well-trodden issues, is the, um, it's the temporal spread of the climate change problem. Climate change is a process that goes on for centuries, and whatever we do about it will go on for centuries 
two, so if we make sacrifices now, many, most of the benefits will not arise for a century, two centuries, maybe. So we're comparing benefits in the far future against costs in the present, and that raises questions. How do you compare costs and benefits again across large swathes uh, of time? A third well-trodden issue is what to do about the value of human lives. Climate change is going to kill millions of people. It's going to do it through disastrous events, uh, such as floods and famines. It's going to do it through increased range of uh, diseases. And it's also going to do it um, simply by being hot. Heat waves <coughs> turn out to be uh, significant killers uh, of people. And if you're to do a cost-benefit analysis of policy to respond to climate change, you're going to have to take that into account. One of the benefits of it is going to be saving lives, and that's going to have to be compared with the costs. So we're going to have to set some sort of a value on saving lives, and there's a question, how do we do that? An obvious issue to engage uh, uh, philosophers. The answer, ultimately, is going to have to come from uh, ethics. So there's an example of some problems that the large-scale ethics of climate change raises. This is the sort of question that the economists are used to dealing with, and I was pretty used to dealing with them, too. So when I came to write this book, uh, Climate Matters, um, uh, I thought, well, these are, I'm familiar with this stuff, so what I've got to do is simply write down what I, what I uh, think about it, write down what the arguments are, try and uh, explain it. But then I realized in the course of writing it that that would not be adequate since this is a popular book. And people, as individuals, are interested in a quite different question as well. As citizens, of course, they need to know what their government should be doing, the large-scale questions, because it's our job as citizens to participate in, in um, trying to get our government to do uh, the right thing, but they're also interested in what they as individuals should be doing in their private lives um, about, um, uh, uh, about climate change. People are already taking uh, action. They're changing their habits. They're, people are eating less meat, they're traveling less, they're insulating their houses, they're buying green energy, and so on. And these are acts that are clearly being done with a moral purpose, nearly always. Um, so what principles of morality determine how we should act in our private lives? I realized in writing the book that I really need to approach that question as well. And when I did, I got a surprise. When I thought about it, I came to the conclusion that the principles that underline the private morality of climate change are quite different from those that underlie the public morality that I've been talking about. Uh, as I explained, um, public morality, I think, can be treated as a sort of cost-benefit analysis. We weigh up costs and benefits, and the aim of that sort of morality is to try and promote good in the world, to try and make the world a better uh, place. We aim to make things as good as we can. The, what underlies the public morality, I think, is um, beneficence, as philosophers put it in a rather technical way doing uh, good. What about private individuals, though? Suppose you, as a private individual, have the aim of beneficence. You want to improve the world. 
you might ask, first of all, do you help to achieve that aim by reducing your own private consumption uh, emission of greenhouse uh, gas? And I want to emphasize that the answer to that question is yes, you do. That answer needs emphasis because I think the scale of the problem of climate change induces a sort of despair in quite a lot of uh, people. They think this problem is vast and nothing can be done about it except by means of cooperation between governments on the very biggest uh, scale. So they think that they as individuals can't possibly do anything about it. They can't do any good by their own individual acts. That's the sort of despair I'm thinking of. Now, I think they're right to the extent that solving the problem of climate change cannot be achieved by anything except international cooperation on a very large scale. But it doesn't follow that if you reduce your own emissions of, climate, of, carbon, of greenhouse gas, you don't do any good. And in fact, you do do good by reducing your own emissions. It's straightforward. Your emissions harm people. So if you emit less, then you um, correspondingly do some good. I can give you some idea of how much harm your emissions do. I think it's a good, good thing to have some notion of the scale of these things. So if you fly both ways across the Atlantic, say, that, according to the calculations, will cause the emission of around about, your individual trip, will cause the emission of around about one and a half tons of uh, carbon dioxide. So that's the quantity of gas emitted. And various economists have put a figure on the harm that that sort of quantity does. This is to say they're given a monetary estimate of the amount of harm that a ton and a half of carbon dioxide does. There are huge differences of opinions about this. The range of estimates varies enormously from $5 to $500. But if you take a figure that comes from um, the Stern Review, which is a pretty authoritative source, take the top end figure from there, it's $85 a tonne. So that means that the, the harm done by your emissions in crossing the Atlantic and back is around about $130 worth of harm done to people all over the world, uh, of course. And if you decide not to make that trip, then that's the amount of good that you do. So there is a real benefit. You can look at this quantity in another way. Remember I said that um, climate change is going to kill people. I think that may well be the very worst harm that it does. And with the help of uh, Dave Frame, a, a physicist um, here at Oxford, I figured out a very, very, let me say, very, 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 very rough estimate of how much we each shorten people's lives by our emission of greenhouse uh, gas by contributing to the climate change, which kills people. The lifetime emissions of someone like me, um, born... Uh, uh, around the time I was born, uh, late 40s, um, living in a rich country uh, like the UK, somebody like me, on average, shortens people's lives by somewhere between six months and one year. Now, of course, we don't do it to any particular person. We're not doing... Uh, there's no individual whose lives we are each shortening 
uh, in that way. This is the total reduction in the length of lives, lives that we bring about. And I'm sure that none of us want to be responsible for destroying that much human life. And if you reduce your emissions, you will destroy less. So you'll do significant good by reducing emissions. And I think we should reduce emissions. But actually, I think that not because uh, it will do good, but for a different reason. Not because it will do good, because actually we have a lot of other more effective ways of doing good than that. Reducing emissions costs you something in some way. You have to spend money on insulating your house uh, and so on. It costs you more if you decide to buy green energy. Um, and I've given you some idea of the amount of good you can achieve by doing that. Doing it absolutely completely for a whole lifetime will save between six months and a year of human life. But you can use your resources to save lives much, much more effectively than that. Giving to a medical charity which treats tuberculosis, for instance, by doing that, you can save a whole life for a few hundred dollars. So if what you want to do is to promote good, do the best amount of good in the world, what you should do is not reduce your emissions of greenhouse gas. Instead, you should not spend your resources on that. You should use them instead in these other ways, which are altogether uh, more effective. Beneficence, that is to say, the aim of doing the most good, does not tell you to reduce your emissions. Nevertheless, I think you should reduce your emissions. And that's for a moral reason of a different sort. Within morality, uh, we recognize different values and uh, different aims, different um, virtues, I should say, and different aims. One of them is beneficence. I've just been talking about what that tells us. Um, and as an economist, that was the one I most naturally thought of first, because that's how economists think. But a different aim of morality is what we call justice. And justice sometimes conflicts with beneficence. Now, those are two rather technical terms within philosophy, um, beneficence and justice. But I'm not doing anything more than talking uh, common sense. Common sense tells you that sometimes it's wrong to do things, even if they're the best way of promoting good. A, a classic case that moral philosophers use is the, to imagine a surgeon, transplant surgeon in a hospital who has five patients. They each need a different organ to, to, to save their life. They'll die if they don't get an organ. One needs a liver, one needs a heart, and so on. <clears throat> so the surgeon takes one of the innocent visitors who happens to come to the hospital, kills her in order to restrict, uh, take out her five organs, uses one for each of the people, thereby saving five lives at the cost of one life. So that's beneficial. We've made a gain in goodness by doing that. But obviously, the surgeon acted wrongly. Why is that? Well, she acted against justice. Um, there is a rule of justice that says you may not infringe people's rights for the sake of doing the best, better, um, greater good in many cases. So we recognize that there's a principle of justice that sometimes overrules beneficence, and it's um, the principle of justice, I think, that tells us what we should do about climate change as private uh, individuals. 
Speaking very generally, there are lots of exceptions to this rule. Speaking very generally, justice prohibits you from harming uh, another person, even for the sake of uh, the greater good. There are many exceptions, uh, as I say. For instance, it's okay to harm somebody in self-defense. Um, it's okay to harm somebody if it's to punish her and she deserves uh, punishment. It's okay to harm somebody by accident, um, though then you generally do require to make restitution and so on. I'm sorry to say I'm not able to list all the exceptions and conditions to this principle that says you shouldn't harm people. Um, that turns out to be surprisingly difficult uh, to do that. But nevertheless, although there are exceptions and conditions, this is a general principle. And now I come to the bit that surprised me, which is what seems to be an inevitable consequence of the fact that in emitting greenhouse gas, you do uh, harm, and that is that you shouldn't do it. I cannot see that the harm you do by emitting greenhouse gas falls under any of the exceptions and conditions of that general principle that you, should not do that you should not do harm. Since greenhouse gas emissions do harm, you should not emit greenhouse gas. That was a surprising conclusion to me, although extremely easily arrived at, as you can see. I mean, the logic is really very straightforward. It surprised me to reach that conclusion, but it also surprised me to find myself preaching. That's not what we generally do in moral philosophy. You know, we stand back and we talk about principles, we talk about the standards of argument that should underlie principles. We do not get up and say, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. But here am I doing exactly that. I'm saying you should not cause emissions of greenhouse gas. And be clear, I mean, this is strong what I'm saying. That means no emissions. I'll weaken it, in, I'll soften it in a, in, a, in a bit. And it seems to me the argument is just transparently uh, simple. Now, it does sound very harsh. So not only is this preaching, but it's harsh preaching. But actually, I'm about to soften it uh, quite a lot. Let's ask how you would do this thing, which I think you should do, of reducing your, green, your emissions to, uh, to nothing. Well, you can do some of it in the usual way, more insulation, eating less meat, and so on. And I do recommend those things, so long as they're not especially uh, costly uh, uh, to you. One thing I don't recommend, incidentally, is uh, buying green uh, elect electricity. That's because of the technical way in which the um, uh, emissions cap on the European electricity industry works. It turns out, this is another incidental surprise I came, came across, and if you want to know more about it, ask me uh, at the end of this lecture. I'll give you the details. But it turns out that if you switch to green in energy, indeed, if you even put up a windmill in your garden and get all your energy from your own windmill, you do not, by that move, reduce emissions of greenhouse gas by one jot. It is a totally ineffective way of uh, reducing emissions. But anyway, um, whether you switch to green electricity or not, or whatever you do, by means of this sort that we're all familiar with, you are not going to reduce your carbon footprint to zero. Because, for example, you have to buy consumer goods of one sort or another, and all of those have involved some carbon emissions in their uh, creation. And here am I saying you should emit no greenhouse gas. So how do you achieve that? Well, the answer is you should offset your emissions. 
A perfectly good way to avoid emitting greenhouse gas is to cancel any emissions that you do make by offsetting them. And offsetting them is easy. And it doesn't even cost very much. So that's why what I'm saying is a lot less harsh than it may have seemed. So what is offsetting? When you cause some greenhouse gas to be uh, added to the air, you can cancel out that emission by at the same time subtracting greenhouse gas from the air. And that's all that offsetting uh, is. The uh, greenhouse effect doesn't care which particular molecules are warming the atmosphere. It's the number of molecules uh, that matter. So if you put some in and at the same time take some out, then you're not uh, causing net any emissions that have do uh, any harm. So you need to subtract the carbon dioxide that you emit. There are various ways of doing it. You can do it by planting a forest, trees, because as trees grow, they take carbon dioxide out of the air. Um, they keep the carbon to build their own bodies, uh, and they release the oxygen, but the oxygen is not a greenhouse gas, so they lock up carbon and take carbon dioxide out of the air. So that's one way you could do it. It's not recommended as a good way because trees don't live forever. In the end, they'll fall down and die, and their carbon will, in one way or another, by decay or by being burnt or something like that, will, be, will return to the atmosphere. So not only do you need to plant a forest, you need to find some way of maintaining that forest in perpetuity, if that way of subtracting carbon is going to be uh, effective. Um, it needs to be maintained either by nature or by your heirs, and that's not very easy to do. So that's not very well, not often recommended. I recommend, actually, the much easier way, which is to use a carbon offsetting company. Those companies run projects that subtract greenhouse gas uh, from the air. They subtract it by what may be called preventive means. What they do is prevent some gas from being emitted that otherwise would have been uh, emitted. <laughs> to give you an example of the sort of thing they can do, um, uh, one project I know installs um, efficient wood-burning stoves in the houses of poor people in Africa, where up to now they've been cooking on open fires. It turns out that one big source of emissions of greenhouse gas in the world is, is burning firewood for cooking. And an efficient wood-burning stove reduces uh, that, so it has the effect of subtracting carbon uh, dioxide. Another way is to take crop waste, such as straw, and make it into burnable uh, fuel. Otherwise, it'll just return to, to the air itself. So I recommend offsetting. However, environmental organizations, particularly Greenpeace, are very strongly opposed to offsetting. So we need to talk about, I need to talk about why. So Greenpeace says, for example, offset, sh offsets shift the responsibility for reducing our carbon footprint from Western governments to ordinary people in the developing world. So Greenpeace evidently thinks that offsetting constitutes a sort of exploitation of people in developing countries. So I need to ask whether they have a good case. Now, there's some things to say about it. Well, the first thing to say is that offsets are remarkably, surprisingly cheap. Um, where I Whereas I suggested, just giving you the vaguest, in, vaguest indication of the harm in monetary terms that's done by a tonne of carbon dioxide, I gave you a figure of around about $85 uh, a tonne. On the other hand, you can buy an offset which will subtract a tonne 
of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for around about $10 a tonne. That alone should make you see that something has gone very badly wrong with the world's economy. That we are freely emitting carbon dioxide where each tonne does $85 worth of harm when that could be prevented at a mere cost of $10. Something is certainly wrong, uh, you can tell from that. So how have we got into that state? Well, it's obvious really. It's because until now it's cost absolutely nothing to emit greenhouse gas. The harm that a greenhouse gas does is what economists call an external cost. It's not suffered by the person who does the emission. It's suffered by everybody else. So the person who does the emission, to that person it costs nothing to emit it. So, of course, people have been freely uh, doing it. But not even the cheapest opportunities for limiting emissions were taken up because it, emission, emitting cost uh, nothing. Now some emissions are actually beginning to cost. In the developed countries, we have uh, taxes, environmental taxes of one sort or another. We have um, uh, cap and trade in the European un Union. And these mechanisms are beginning to make it actually cost something, at least to some people and in some cases, to emit carbon dioxide. So opportunities for preventing emission are beginning to uh, be, taking, be taken up. And we already have a lot of that going on in Britain, of course. We have... Uh, wind farms, people have solar panels and so on, they're taking opportunities for reducing emissions. But in developing countries, very little of that has happened so far. So um, there are still very, very cheap opportunities for reducing emissions in developing countries. And that's one reason why the offsetting companies generally go to developing <coughs> countries in order to run their projects. It, where it's where it can be done most cheaply. Now, that's a good thing. As a general rule, uh, this is the economist speaking here, as a general rule, it's a good idea when something is to be done in the world for it to be done in the place where it can be done most cheaply. So, for example, it's a good idea for oranges to be grown in Spain, where they can live outside, rather than Britain, where it's much more expensive to produce them since they have to be kept indoors. Similarly, since it's at the moment cheapest to uh, reduce emissions in developing countries, it's a good idea for that to happen, which is what the offset companies do. Moreover, these projects are financed by a transfer of funds from rich countries to the poor countries where uh, they happen. They bring employment, they bring other benefits. For example, those wood-burning stoves I talked to you about bring benefits in health since people's houses are no longer full of smoke. They bring other benefits. They're beneficial in various ways. So there doesn't seem... So, so there are other things to be said in favour of them. They're certainly not like exporting toxic waste to developing countries, which a lot of rich countries used to do, which really does do those countries harm. That's now banned. But using sending emission, um, emission projects to developing countries, they're not really like that. So that's one explanation of why they're so cheap, and there doesn't seem to be anything that one could think of as bad, that Greenpeace should be thinking of as bad in that. However, one reason why the projects are so cheap in developing countries is that um, the people who live in those countries are so poor 
relative to us. Because of their poverty, they'll work for low wages. And it's certainly true that in buying offsets, we are taking advantage of their poverty. And that is exploitation of uh, a sort. Uh, similarly, um, we're exploiting people in developing countries when we buy clothes that they produce or computers that they produce. We're benefiting from the fact that they will work for lower wages than we do because they are poorer. This is part of the widespread unfairness that there is in the world. Uh, we are better off than other people who work just as hard as we do, who are just as deserving as we do, but they don't get the same share in the world's riches uh, as we get, and that is unfair. And we benefit from the unfairness. We benefit it by cheap clothes and cheap computers. We also benefit, it, benefit from it by um, cheap uh, offsets. But this is an objection to the world's economic system, the whole system as it is, as it's arisen by history and uh, from other causes. It's not an objection to carbon offsets, which, if anything, do something to diminish that uh, unfairness by transferring resources from the rich uh, to the poor. So there is a sort of exploitation. I can't deny that. But I don't think that that constitutes a valid objection to offsetting, um, as Greenpeace suggests. There's another thing to say, though, that I think Greenpeace also has this in mind. Offsetting is cheap at present only because hardly anybody is doing it. If most people started acting as I say they should, offsets would quickly become expensive because all the opportunities would be used up and it would then be worth our while rather than buying offsets cheaply to reduce our emissions using the other means that I described, like um, installing solar panels and things like that. And moreover, if governments acted as they should, which is to reduce emissions of greenhouse uh, gas, they would be um, drastically forcing down the emissions of their public and their, uh, their uh, enterprises by the means they have at their disposal, like taxation and regulation. And again, we would find ourselves forced to take more drastic action to do something about uh, uh, greenhouse um, gas emissions. These offsets that I'm recommending are really, they're not much more than a fig leaf, really. They're just a temporary opportunity that we in rich countries have as individuals to satisfy our duty of justice, the duty not to do harm, um, because of the conditions in the rest uh, of the world. Remember, I never recommended these offsets as a way to improve the world. Your opportunity to improve the world by limiting emissions is very, very um, uh, limited. Um, improving the world to the extent that's needed is going to have to be achieved by governments. Governments can then use their coercive powers on their people to force people to emit less greenhouse gas. That's not why it's not to reduce emissions that I'm recommending that you do it. It's so it's simply to avoid violating your, it seems to me, indubitable duty of justice not to harm uh, people. But Greenpeace is suggesting, I think, that the use of offsets delays more serious action, delays governments in taking the much more drastic action that they should do. Now, I'm not sure whether that's correct or not. 
Um, remember, I'm only talking about offsets for individuals. It's true also that under the Kyoto Protocol, governments and large organizations are allowed to buy uh, offsets um, uh, through something called the Clean Development Mechanism. So, for example, a company or a, or a country can buy um, a, a swathe of forest in a developing uh, a country and prevent it from being cut down. And that prevents a certain amount of um, uh, emissions. Now, there are difficult issues about the, those sort of offsets, particularly about the business of buying forests, a method that's called RED, standing for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degra degradation. There is, a, there, there is a fair amount of dodginess uh, about that, I have to say. But we, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about public morality, what governments and big organizations should be doing. Um, and, uh, for all I know, Greenpeace may be right about government's offsets. It may be that the fact that governments can buy forests is actually delaying the action that they ought to be uh, taking. But I can't see clearly why private individuals buying offsets should delay governments in taking the actions that they need to take. So I'm not, I, I, I don't see a convincing case from Greenpeace uh, on those grounds. So let me say what my conclusions are, just repeat them. They're very simple, really. They're conclusions only about the private morality of climate change. The private morality is based on duty of justice, a moral duty of justice, rather than a moral duty of beneficence. It requires us all to refrain from emitting greenhouse gas, which is to say to reduce our carbon footprint to zero. And at present, we can achieve that outcome relatively easily by offsetting. So I've left a fair amount of time for questions. Um, that's all I'm planning to say. So, any questions, please?